Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. In this episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Ian and Nigel Baxter, two brothers on opposing sides of the Brexit debate. We ask if they can come together and work out how to unite the country after a divisive few years. Now, Armando, I thought Boris Johnson got Brexit done. So why are we still talking about this? Uh, we are still talking about it because it so still underlines everything that we do. It's obviously the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis has a higher priority in our conversation. But how people voted in the Brexit debate still determines, I think, their attitudes to all sorts of other issues. Now, whether it is about the pandemic and the whole lockdown issue, vaccinations and trade, who the next prime minister should be, how economic policy should be determined. It's that one unspoken subject that has so divided our country that I thought it would be interesting to give it another poke. It's not about trying to push one view over another. I want to see if there's anything that both sides have in common now after six years of this that can at least start us on the way to getting a more united conversation going about everything else. Mm. And there's so much left to sort out, isn't there? Not least the Northern Ireland Protocol. and Well, exactly. So I think Brexit is going to be looming again in terms of, you know, its after effects. And also... To make it more personal, because it is an issue which has divided regions, countries, communities and families, I thought, why don't we actually discuss it among a family who have had opposing views on the subject? Now, I'm so pleased that we're joined by two very special guests, two brothers, both with separate businesses dealing with Europe, who voted different ways in the 2016 Brexit referendum. Ian Baxter is the founder and chair of Baxter Freight a company organising the transit of goods across the UK, Europe and around the world. He voted to remain in the EU, believing it would make the UK economically worse off to leave. Ian is joining us from Nottingham, where he lives just five miles away from our other guest, his brother, Nigel Baxter. And Nigel is the managing director of RH Commercial Vehicles, a large truck dealership working with Renault and Isuzu, uh, which was set up by their father and where both brothers used to work together. And Nigel voted to leave in the 2016 referendum, believing Brexit would allow the UK to negotiate trade deals around the world. Ian, Nigel, thanks thanks for joining us. Hi. Welcome. You live five miles away. Do you you still talk? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, we used to work together, Ian and I, so we don't have daily dialogue in the same way that we did, but we're 
as a family, I think, uh, with other brothers as well. We're still in good communication and have still a bit of good banter around Brexit, amongst other things, and other political things where there is always a little bit of a gulf between Ian and I. And we're looking forward to a family party at the weekend as well. So Absolutely. To celebrate what? Uh, my uh, younger daughter's engagement. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah. To, uh, yeah what was it like at the height of the referendum debate then when you were on opposing sides? Well, I think it was pretty vexed at times because, you know, it was vexed across the country, wasn't it? it? It was stressful. I think it brought up differences that to some degree we knew existed, but to some degree lay in the background and we hadn't really talked about. So it was challenging at times, but Nigel and I always kept a good relationship through that and sort of prided ourselves and almost pushed ourselves to keep a good relationship when it was hard perhaps to do so. And so, you know, we wanted to kind of model that to our own families that there's no need to fall out about this thing. And so, you know, we want to model that going forward as well. And people voted to leave and to remain for different reasons, didn't they? So we don't want to rake over the old arguments again. But if you could both fill us in on why you chose to vote the way that you did, just so that we know where you were coming from. Nigel, do you want to go first? Why did you vote to leave? For me, the whole argument was around self-determination. You know, I believe in the United Kingdom from stuff. I know Ian does too, by the way. So that's, a, that's something we have in common. And I, I really felt the direction of travel of the EU into some kind of supranational, international state almost, was something I, I couldn't countenance really or support. And I just felt that ebbing away from us was our self-control and our self-determination. That was the key thing for me. Of course, it was tempered with all of the arguments around what would be the economic impact and mm. so on and so forth. You know, I was a bit surprised to see some of the vitriol between people and even families and perhaps it even exists today, although I don't hear Brexit quite so often mentioned. Because for me, it was a very clear-cut thing. It was relatively easy to argue, at least it felt so for me. Of course, there were plenty of people on the opposing sides, not least, not least Ian. So I didn't see it as such a divisive thing, but clearly it was and became very divisive. And fortunately now, to the greater extent, that's ebbed away. And in terms of me, I suppose I had two main reasons. One was a narrow reason, if you like, which was our trading relationship with the European Union is our most important. About 45% of our exports used to go there. And I just felt that we would significantly damage that trade if we left the EU and we would make trading with Europe much more complicated. I work in European freight, so I have a background in that. And of course, you know, that has happened mm. and it has had the impacts that it's had. But I also felt that we should remain for global political reasons. So the big picture reasons as well. That's really because in difficult times, you need friends and you need to stick close to your friends. And European countries are our closest neighbors and our in many ways, our closest friends. And it felt important to me, however imperfect the European project sometimes was and is, that we continue to collaborate together and try and get that right and build a common future when there are many complicated threats from around the world. And were these views, were these clear to you at the time? I mean, was it clear to each other how you were going to go on, on the debate? I mean, for me, it was very clear. I don't, I don't think I had 
too many worries about whether I was making the right decision. I, I did question myself, I, you know, a few times, is this right? And then mostly around the trade element that, hmm. that Ian refers to, what would be the impact of that? And, you know, my my own business works with a European partner, you know, part of the Volvo Group, well-recognized biggest truck manufacturer in the world. Our product, if you like, is is imported from from France what would be the impact of that personally. So there was, there was the personal element. But overall, I don't buy this this lack of friendship thing that comes from from the argument that somehow by not being cooperative, well, not not even not being cooperative, by not participating in the same way, yeah. uh, that doesn't change our friendship. I'm friends with all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. doesn't mean to say that I agree with everything or do everything the same way that they do. And Ian was expressing some frustration in how things have gone in terms of his business. Have have you felt anything different or has it gone the way you expected, Nigel? From our own perspective, there has been, when I say no impact, I mean, I genuinely mean no impact. There was a lot of concern. I mean, I remember going immediately after the referendum result to a crisis meeting that was called at Volvo and Renault's headquarters in Warwick. Well, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, there's quite a lot of different European nationalities represented in that meeting. There was, you know, people with their head in their hands. I mean, I felt it was a difficult position for me personally. Almost thought it was all my fault sort of thing, you know, that this thing had happened. But clearly I'm one of 17 million odd. <laughs> but all the things that they were worried about have not come to pass in the actuality, as haven't most of the things, if indeed any of the things that the Remain argument were saying would happen. Now, Ian's going to make an argument, I'm sure make it for him, on trade and the trade is diminished. But I think we've been through such a tumultuous period with COVID and, and the pandemic that deciding what has affected what in terms of trade is pretty tricky. But in absolute answer to your question, yeah. have we been restricted in part supply? Has it been more difficult to get parts on a next day basis? Now is the answer. Have we found frustrations in getting trucks here into the UK? Now is the answer. That's the bottom line for me. So, Ian, you were expressing some frustration, though, in your experience of how the business has gone in the last six years. Trade has got more complicated. Look, we're a freight business, and our job is to to solve those complications. And actually, that's enabled our business to grow in this season. So I am not saying, just to be clear, that it's harmed our business. It's been very challenging amongst many other significant challenges we've had over the last few years, like lots of businesses. But we've done reasonably well during that season. But the fundamentals are that when you put obstacles in the way of trade, trade is impacted negatively. Surprise, surprise. And the reality is our trade is down, I think they're saying by 15%, something like that with the European Union. So there's a significant change Mm. in our exports to the EU. Not Brexit though, is it? All of it, Ian? At a time when you know, we're going into a very substantial recession. What we have done is to damage trade with our most significant trading partner. And we were told, well, don't worry about that because there's new trade deals on the way with America, with the Far East, with Australia, New Zealand, and so on. They either haven't happened or their impact isn't positive for the UK. So, I think from a trade point of view, the case has been made that it is not good for us to leave the European Union. That's a very narrow position, Ian, isn't it? You know 
we know very well that trade has been badly impacted as a result of component issues and supply side issues. Our automotive trade is down. Why is that down? It's mostly down to component issues. There are all sorts of things, more as a result of the COVID pandemic than there are out of the trade agreement. Trade, you know better than me, so I'm not going to preach to you, but you know very well that the trade between the EU, although it's more complicated, is to the greater extent without massive friction. And certainly on the import side currently, partly because the government's pushed back its deadlines in terms of imposing more restrictions, our government that is, is more or less unimpeded. And that's my own experience. So I think it's very easy to say that trade is down and it's all Brexit, but that's actually not right. Well, we're six years on now and your views must have changed slightly in this time. You know, Nigel, you must be frustrated by some of the outcomes of Brexit or the limitations of the free trade agreements that have come out of it. And equally, Ian, you must be coming to terms with the fact that we are now living in Brexit Britain and there's not going to be a sort of reversal of that anytime soon. I think that's summed up in one of Keir Starmer's new slogans, which is make Brexit work rather than get Brexit done. So how have your views sort of evolved over the six years? Will will you say something for either side of the argument? What I would say is that the impact to Brexit that I was expecting hasn't been as forceful as I had hoped. And Ian is right about those trade deals, fledgling that a lot of them are, and certainly the change in administration for good or bad, mostly would say for good in the US, has clearly impacted a trade deal with the United States, which seemed much more likely previously. But I think we have to set it against the background without making excuses that the priority over the last 24 months or so has not been on trade deals or anything other really than surviving the COVID situation. And of course, now in this year, we're enduring, and it just feels like enduring as well, by the way, as a conservative voter, this change of leadership, which has been mired in sleaze and, and, and other issues earlier in, the, in this year. So we've, we just seem to be losing great chunks of time. So when we measure it as six years or whatever, you know, in reality, it's been interrupted so badly by by other priorities, bigger priorities. I don't think it's really fair to make a, a clear assessment exactly now on where we should be. But but uh, yes, am I disappointed that it's not been golden? Uh, yes, I am. Ian, are you yearning for anything different or have you come to accept that you know we are where we are, to use that dreaded phrase? Well, I think we are where we are. We've left the European Union. I agree with Keir Starmer's slogan. You know, we have to make Brexit work. And in these complicated times, of course, it is simpler in some ways to move forward as one nation rather than 28 nations. So, you know, there are, of course, certain advantages in being on your own, but there are disadvantages too. But anyway, we've made our bed. We have to lie in it. We have to make it work. So let's make trade work. Let's make immigration work. And let's focus on doing the things that make Britain great. You know, we've got many good characteristics in our country. We've built a history of being known as advocates of democracy, of trade, of cooperation between nations and so on. And, you know, what I want to do is to move forward, focusing on the core values that have made Britain the great country that it is, and trying to move away from the arguments that we've had in the past. 
I was pleased to hear Starmer make use those words and use that slogan because the backstory really is that Labour would prefer to reverse it. Is I mean that's the that's the bottom line. I mean talking about being divisive, I suspect the, the political classes in various different ways would like to see this argument revisited. Frankly, but I agree with Ian. We do now need to move on with it. We do now need to make the best of it, if that's the right words. Um, and you know, I'm looking forward to that. I genuinely think that we will be better off over time. And the distortion that has come, uh, unfortunately, through the COVID pandemic caused a huge misery for people all over the world. That is a massive factor on the drag on our progress with it. Can I just ask, you know, in this spirit that we're trying to engender here of compromise, or at least finding something in common to agree about, do either of you have any doubts about what's happened or are you surprised or disappointed by any elements of how things have played out? Ian? I think the thing that I haven't enjoyed is when we have broken our reputation as a country that supports rules-based organisations, the rule of law and that kind of thing. I think sometimes in the promise, you know, that let's get Brexit done or oven ready deal or when Parliament was prorogued and and we got to the Supreme Court over that issue. I, I think that was really not Britain at its best. And everyone who's involved in this debate needs to take a step back and to say, okay, that's gone now. We didn't enjoy it. That is not the Britain that we know and love. The Britain we know and love has built rules-based organisations. The Britain we know and love believes in the rule of law and has been a global advocate for that, and that's what we need to get back But simultaneously, before we get on to you, Nigel, and I'm just wondering, is there anything that you thought would be terrible that hasn't happened? You know, Is there anything that you're prepared to change an aspect of your mind over? I think the reality is that the messages that we in the Remain campaign had argued for have largely come true. So I'm, I'm struggling to to find that thing where there is a common ground. And, and Nigel, is that I'm not trying to put you on on the spot. I'm just trying to see whether how easy it is to move from your positions that you had at the time of the vote, given that we're six years on. Is there anything that you've been disappointed by that you thought would be a a positive outcome on Brexit that actually hasn't happened. I think just countering in a little bit, and I, I'm trying you asking me to name positives in that in that sense. The disappointments for me have been a little bit around what has seemed to be childish reaction of some other European leaders, including the the French president, who seem to be rather vindictive and have an agenda against Britain. And I've been a bit surprised and disappointed suppose by that. And when Ian talks about rules-based, you know, we had a president of the EU who was prepared to invoke Article 16, um, you know, and it was very vocal about that. So there's been pros and cons on both sides. I was never somebody that was going to go and stand outside Downing Street and say, get Brexit done or, mm. or this yeah. or that. The argument was very clear to me. We were better off out. And my purpose in that time with working for the Vote Leave campaign in the end was to get that message across. And I think we got that message across 
well. I can't remember now, it's so long ago, Ian's exact position on the economic arguments, but certainly the economic arguments of the Remain camp were that this was going to be the apocalypse. And um, none of that, if anything at all, I can't think of has ever come true. So I haven't changed with my position at all. I, but but it wasn't either aggressive either. I didn't. I wasn't ramming it down somebody's throat. I hope I made the arguments as clearly as I could. I'm just a layman, really, in business, and I don't think it's been as golden, if that's the phrase, as, as it might have been. But I, I think, without making excuses and repeating myself a bit, you know, I think you have to look at it in the context of all the other things that have gone. The one thing I have hated through the whole thing, I have to say, has been the media coverage and the agenda of our beloved broadcasting corporation and their their message that was completely anti-Brexit and fortunately has been forced off the airwaves or appears to be in the, in the most part currently. Might come back to the fore when we get a new prime minister. But, perhaps. Uh, by the time this podcast goes out there may not be a bbc so uh, <laughs> well, maybe speaking in the past tense this, this this might be it it just be new statesman broadcasting from some <laughs> ship in the north sea uh, oh, well you know well the positives and negatives <laughs> <laughs> what i would say just trying to be yeah. positive what yeah. i would say let me come back and try to be positive <laughs> some people said or implied that the world would end if we left the eu the reality is the world hasn't ended because we left the EU. There is a good future for the UK outside of the EU. The question is, who's going to grasp that? Who's going to do the things that we need to do? Who's got that vision to drive us forward to a positive future outside the EU? And I would say you have to go back to those best of British values to rebuild the country and focus on the good things that we are known for and have done well over many, many years. Well, it's nice to hear a positive because I'm I'm just trying to poke around a bit to see whether in this valiant attempt on our part to see whether there's some common ground, whether that will involve people admitting that they got some things right and some things wrong. Here are the things we think we got right. Here are the things that we got wrong, because before people admit that, both sides aren't going to sit down and have a conversation together, other than to say, you were wrong and I was right, if I've got that right. You know, I think what I would say is that it was very difficult for us on the Remain side to accept the results of the referendum after it happened. And therefore, I think people on our side of the debate did try to sort of water it down, perhaps frustrate the process and so on. And ultimately, just as I would say, it was wrong to try and prorogue parliament, Mm -hmm. it was wrong Mm -hmm. to break some of the, the, the rules and conventions of the UK in trying to deliver the Brexit result. I think it's fair to say that on the other side, some people tried to frustrate the Brexit result and it was a referendum where it had been set up as winner takes all. Yeah. Yes. It? I mean, maybe it was wrongly conceived, but it had been set up as winner takes all. And once that was in play, we needed the government to actually give effect. No, I agree. And I, I, you know, I raised my hand as someone who went on the march for a, another referendum and so on. You know, on reflection, you just think, actually, it's not going to go away. We've left any attempt to get back into the EU 
even if somebody got elected now and said, my main policy is to rejoin the EU, it would take years. We've left all sorts of special opt-outs that we had in place in the EU. We won't go those back again. Now is time for those of us who voted Remain, I think anyway, to say, look, this is what it is. I think it's sad, but how do we make it work rather than from standing at the sidelines moaning about <laughs> how badly it's going? I think we need to participate, really. But I also feel the reason I wanted to have this discussion is because I also feel I think it's incumbent on those who voted to leave to admit, especially the ones in power, to admit where things have gone a bit wrong or where things aren't working. Because unless they do that, we can't then together put things right. Yeah. Well, there are two, two things there. So one is when we started in that referendum, I fully expected to lose. Yeah. And in fact, I think even getting close, you know, when there were things that happened, the, the terrible uh, murder of Joe Cox, for example, mm. that shifted the agenda. I, I really thought that that in itself might be a bit of a game changer, even if we in the Leave camp had thought we got some momentum there. And I can't imagine, maybe it would have been like this, but I can't imagine that perpetuating this argument of trying to get back in, of a new referendum would have happened if we'd voted to remain. I think it would have been, I think it genuinely would have been accepted. Now, that might be through rose-coloured spectacles, I don't know. But So I'm a bit, I've been disappointed by, by that argument. But what I'm struggling for, and I really want you to tell me, maybe I'm naive, is what is it that we're suggesting we've got so badly wrong and isn't working and should be better? Well, I mean, let's start with trade. You know, we have damaged our trading relationship with the European Union. We need to go back to the table, not in a threatening way, but in a way of partnership and say, how do we make this better? We are a net importer from the European Union. They have an interest as well in having a frictionless trade arrangement with the UK because they need to move on as well. We need to move on. They need to move on. This is a new and difficult phase of this economic century and we need to move forward together. I don't see why that's difficult being outside the EU myself. Just to broaden the discussion out a bit, Armando mentioned this at the beginning of the discussion about how the way that people voted in the EU referendum often says many other things about their other political or even cultural opinions. And Nigel, you mentioned your sort of cynicism about the BBC. And I think you you mentioned that you voted Conservative. And like, there's even been polling that suggests that people who voted Leave were a bit more sceptical about lockdowns and other COVID measures, for example. Have you found that you each have very different worldviews in other ways? Or do you not feel that sort of identity divide? Yes, I think we have uncovered differences <laughs> on many issues, to be honest. <laughs> whether it's immigration and the welcome that we give to refugees, whether it's lockdown measures and the approach that we took during COVID, whether it's Donald Trump and the situation in America, whether it's perhaps the response to China or the Ukraine war or those kind of things, I think there are differences. There are differences of approach that are at the core of the Brexit debate, really. And that's why I say we need to almost sit down at the table and go back to basics of what are our, what in business we would call corporate values. What are the things that we've got in common? What are the things that 
Britain does well and has built a reputation for and try and design policy around that. I think we've always been an open country. I think we've always wanted to be a tolerant country. We've always welcomed immigrants from around the world. We've always been free traders by nature. We've always been low regulation. We've always been advocates for international cooperation. And that's where Britain is best. If we go back, turn back to our history, that will guide us to our future. We haven't abandoned those values, have we? I don't even think they're particularly watered down yet. I mean, you know, our response to Ukraine has been as robust and supportive as any, if not more than, than the rest of the world, the United States perhaps accepted because of its scale. We are vocal on things like China and Uyghurs and, and so on and so forth. We perhaps should be more so. I, I don't think our rule of law, our rule of law, to my mind, will be strengthened by, or ought to have been strengthened by Brexit. And and certainly we're free traders and all of the other things that you're there. So I don't see Britain as something that's become less of those things particularly. Maybe it has, maybe we could measure them. I don't think that's the spirit of Britain today. And as a representative, as in, the, in the way that we present it, we were at the forefront of vaccines. There's been a huge amount of good things that Britain has done in the period there. And we can stay away from the politics of that and the people that are involved in that, because I know that's a bit divisive. I think what the question was a little bit about was, do we differ on those yes. things? And I think the answer to that question is, yes, we do a bit. But I think if you really get down to it, we are perhaps naturally, hugely similar when it's distilled. And similarly, I have a number of friends who have been quite ferocious about their views on Brexit and immigration, and, and, and I continue those debates today, perhaps even more so than I do with it. And, and I, get their, I get their perspective, but I, d- I don't buy that we are, we've become insular. It's not Britain. It's not the Britain I know today. That's the key point. Immigration, I've Fairly strong views on that, I have to say, but not because I'm unsympathetic to to refugees. On on, on the contrary, I just think this whole channel trafficking route thing is is just horrendous, and you know needs needs solving, and it, it's not being solved by cooperation currently. It's it doesn't feel that it's getting worse, if not better. Looking at a more rigid system, albeit that it feels pretty harsh, is just finding a way, really, that, that, may, that may help. We cannot continue with those things. And if you're talking about cooperation now with Britain and the EU, there's a place we should be cooperating more, in my view, although we should also accept that quite a lot's being done that uh, is not being dismissed. Do you accept, Nigel, that Britain is still a divided country, m- maybe as a result of Brexit, if not now because of Brexit, but that what Brexit has done has put labels on two sides of the UK and... You know, my concern is how do we get those sides to talk to each other other than one side saying to the other side, you've got to come over to us or not at yeah. all? You know, to be honest with you, I'm fortunate enough to get into London a little bit and to work with one or two organisations where, again, I you know count as a blessing that I meet all sorts of different people from journalists to lawyers to all sorts of people and therefore have a wide breadth of people's opinion. What I would say is when you talk about the divide of people in Britain, to me it feels more south-north and it feels more, hesitant to use the word, but I can't think of a better one, class-related in terms of division. So people who would consider themselves perhaps to be more intellectual tend, in my experience, to be more pro-remain, if that's the right phrase for them now, an anti-Brexit, 
and people that I mix with through work as employees, and I do you know, get a bit of opinion on those things, Brexit almost never comes up. What needs to happen is we, we've done it. We've got over it. You yourself have talked about how you know you, you wanted to march to or did march for another referendum. It's about acceptance and it is about making the best of it. And that's exactly what we've got to do. That's what presumably Liz Truss has got to do. And, you know, if she can get reelected or someone can get reelected from the Conservative Party, then that's what they need to do. Or Keir Starmer, if it is him, also needs to do. That that is what's got to happen. We can't keep opening up these wounds. I believe that Britain's best years can be ahead of us. I'm an optimist by nature. I wouldn't be able to run a business, especially over the last few years, without being an optimistic guy. So I, I believe that we can get through our challenges and we can build a new future. And that doesn't have to be in the European Union. We don't need to redo the old debates, but we do need to move forward in the areas that we've talked about, close cooperation with our neighbours, real deep friendship, and finding out you know, what their needs are, as well as our needs. It's not just about us. Relationships are not a one-way street. And, and that's also, I think, a guiding principle to think about how to solve the divides in our country is to think about, well, it's not all about me. It's not all about my views. It's not all about my interests. We will be better, more successful, more prosperous, and have, frankly, more joy in our lives if we also think about the other person of the other country and how their needs can be met and how we can help others into a new future that will work for everyone. Well, thanks. This has been really interesting and I hate to cut it off. But just lastly, I'm curious, have you had this kind of conversation with each other before? Have you have you had these discussions in the six years since the vote? Ian and I have had a number of discussions around it. I mean, to tell you the absolute truth, and I think this says a bit about Brexit now, I don't recall a conversation this year particularly about it. Mm. There's been other things on, on the agenda, and I think that's we are Microsoft of how Britain is today in the sense that it's a backstory now in the main. But yes, political discussion in our families doesn't take very long to... Uh, to get round to politics, we've tried to make a policy sometimes or an agreement at a family meeting. Let's not talk about politics. But <laughs> these things would normally last two or three minutes, I can assure you. you know. We have a sort of noun for a collective of Baxters, and you know, it's an argument of Baxters. <laughs> That's the collective noun. <laughs> so Ian and I will continue to debate everything, whether it's, uh, and I haven't had this conversation, whether it's about football or Brexit, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump. Ed Davey, though. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Ed Davey, hero or villain. I don't know whether you had intended this as a kind of (laughs) cathartic healing session. (laughs) But I have to say that as we come into land, as we come to the end, I do feel there's been some healing in all of this. Well, that's good. This is all part of our well-being (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Roll out of well-being podcasts. That, yeah. <laughs> I always knew, Ian, I would be a bit of balm to your soul at some point. <laughs> well, it is important because I think we have, for one reason or another, we're in a situation where the political environment is you have to hold to a strict point of view and anyone who disagrees with you is not to be debated with. 
is to be switched off or shut down. So even though I might not agree with everything that's been said, I think it's important that we have these conversations so that we can try and see where people from different perspectives can come together. Really. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. You know. And now for the other Baxters. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was really interesting stuff. I think, you know, it was more useful than if we'd got a couple of Brexit pundits from either side of the oh, debate around the table. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And not that Nigel and Ian are representative of the entire population. In fact, they're, I think they're fairly unrepresentative in that they're quite happy to have a disagreement in front of each other and still get on. But for me, I found throughout the discussion, and I think I think this is part of the problem, I had to resist the temptation to go, no, that's wrong. Or, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, don't, I disagree, which is part of the, the issue that, that Brexit's laid. This, this device of this sense that you know, you're either for or against, you're in this camp or that one, and neither the twain shall meet. And if we are going to progress anywhere as a country or as a community, then we've got to drop that somehow. I detect it from Ian, you know, a willingness to accept that we are where we are and you know, we can't go back now. Nigel, I sort of feel, is still not going to change his mind on where he was six years ago and any problems are possibly the problems of people who've been complaining about Brexit or yeah. people people outside the UK who are not making Brexit work. And I think just to go from the uh, the micro to the macro, I think that is the problem I find anyway with politicians, either, you know, Keir Starmer, would just wish Brexit would go away and doesn't want to talk about it. Or, I'm assuming Liz Truss, will say it's 100% successful, so there's no discussion to be had. And neither of those positions are sustainable. Yes, whereas I think both Ian and Nigel were willing to interrogate their own position and <laughs> where they stand now and accept certain things. So even though Nigel did do what I have noticed Brexiteers in government do sometimes do, where they will talk about the EU being disruptive. I think he talked about Macron being vindictive, actually. Mm -hmm. So they'll blame certain mm -hmm. EU countries for making certain things difficult. And, you know, in a way, they do have an incentive to do that in some cases. And then also saying, well, it's COVID that's caused the huge yeah. problems that we have now. And that is mainly true, although Brexit has had an impact, particularly on things like the labour market here, for example. Oh, which, yes. You know, immigration yeah. experts all... Except. Brexiteers will say that the debate about Brexit is over and it's not on the top of anyone's priorities. And Remainers will say it's behind a lot of the issues that yes. then emerged in the cost of living crisis and Ukraine and, and the pandemic. So, again, you, either these two sides are irreconcilable or hopefully there's some connection between the two. But I think it does... I think it will, in the end, involve both sides admitting to where they've made a mistake yes. about what they put forward in their initial debate. Yeah, and they both work in an industry which are particularly sensitive to yeah. sort of worker shortages, supply chain disruption, inflation, that kind of thing. And I think they both basically said the impact hadn't been as big as they thought it might be. So I think Nigel said he wished that there'd been sort of a more forceful effect from Brexit and it hadn't been as golden, I think, was, was the word that he used. And then Ian also... He said that from the start, he didn't say there was going to be sort of economic Armageddon from it. And that's not something yes. that he's experienced in his company, even though he said there 
was a great deal of frustration. But will we get the Jacob Rees-Mogg's of this world saying Brexit's not Mm. been as golden as we once hoped it would be, but here we are. No, I don't think we will. (laughs) That would be a good New Statesman exclusive. Okay, well, we'll send send him this recording. (laughs) So what's on the next episode? On our final episode of this series, we're looking at our leaders and asking, has the UK become too presidential? With special guests, Alistair Campbell and Catherine Haddon. Thanks so much, Armando. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from the podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. 